is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome back to the second installment of Rewind's journey 35 years into the past to look at the birth of the Trifford's amazing album, Born Sandy Devotional. I'm your host, Steve Bell. Being a five-part season, we've let the story unravel from the very beginning, so we recommend you start at part one if you haven't already, just to get the full impact. Up until now, we've been making records of collections of accumulated songs. This will instead be songs written for an LP with a theme, not a hodgepodge of historically compiled songs. The theme will be unrequited love, but the language will reach way up and beyond that. Very literary to prevent it becoming soppy. Muscular, slow droning, long background strings, deaf jazzy bass and drums. That's Dave McComb writing in his journal about his vision for what would become the Trifford second album, Born Sandy Devotional, penned while they were back in Australia for summer between the two UK tours. We heard in the first episode how they'd gone over to London in 1984 to make a splash and get a record deal for their second album, and how they definitely made the splash, landing on the front cover of English Music Bible NME, who trumpeted 1985 as the year of the Triffords, but so far the deal hadn't been forthcoming. But the show must go on, so they were back in London with their new six-piece configuration, living on the smell of an oily rag and saving their pennies with the dawning realisation that they were probably going to have to pay for the new record themselves. On a positive note, the Triffords at this stage, by all accounts, were on fire, both on stage and creatively. Dave had taken some singing lessons while back in Perth, and come out a more compelling and authoritative frontman, confident and commanding. In Bled and Butcher's 2011 book, Save What You Can, The Day of the Triffords, a prime resource for this podcast, and an excellent first-hand account by a good friend of the band, the enemy photographer who in 2014 also released the Nick Cave photography book, A Little History, he explains that Dave was trying to sing more like a blues singer now, with command and authority delivering the songs instead of offering them up. Bledon mentions names like the hillbilly preacher and the crackpot evangelist, even if Dave was trying for the ravaged penitent, but the results were powerful and visceral and unsettling. And their sets were becoming littered with new songs as well, crowds being treated to early glimpses of lonely stretch, life of crime, stolen property and chicken killer as they conducted warm-up shows around the UK and then made their first foray to mainland Europe and Scandinavia in mid-1985. There they played their first gigs in countries that would soon become their most fervent fan bases in the world, outside of Australia. We're talking Netherlands, Greece, Sweden, Belgium, even Ireland. They all fell hard for the Triffords' charms. They even got to hit the summer Euro festival circuit, playing to huge crowds at festivals like Glastonbury, Pink Pop, Water Pop, Roskilde, T&W Belgium and Den Haag's Park Pop, unheard of for an Aussie band at the time. Soon-to-be official manager Sally Collins remembers everything being close to perfect in this regard. My shows were just great, you know, awe-inspiring. And when we went, you know, the and 
for me, you know, during the recording process, I mean, I was hardly there because I was so busy working with agents and getting this tour, the to these tours together through Europe. And the the European tour went, it was just gangbusters. You know, it was great in London and it was everywhere we went, you know, it was so amazing. Maybe not so much Germany, but everywhere else we went, the band was, people just loved the band instantly. And they all, of course, were driven by the the, the English press. And um, so we, the band just had fantastic press. We got to do, we, we got on to really huge bills, you know, in, in, in Europe and as well as, um, you know, in summer festivals. And yeah, they, um, the, the shows were great. And they were doing the Born Sandy shows and uh, songs, um, not all of them, but some of them. And, you know, really, you know, the, the, the British and the Europeans just loved the drama of, um, of, the, uh, um, of the songs. And, and also they loved, I mean, just, you know, when Gilbert would sing Raining Pleasure, the audience would be screaming, you know, like the Beatles. It was amazing, you know, the just, um, yeah. So we had a really great time on that level was great. Triffitt's multi-instrumentalist, Rob McComb, Dave's brother, remembers the experience in Europe of being respected as musicians as being a real eye-opener for the band. Yeah, like our first trip into Europe, we find ourselves, the first thing we're doing is, the first gig was at Levine University, which is oldest university in the world and then uh, before I the studio and did you know live performance um, which was just so different than our experience in Australia I mean um, I think Donny Sutherland had us on sounds one time but <laughs> you know Molly Meldrum was, was very good at ignoring people like us he got the scientists on but uh, so to have that yeah, sudden when we're in Europe, it was exciting when you'd suddenly um, see, well, just uh, not only the audiences, but the promoters and the whole industry just treated us, you suddenly felt there's respect, you know, whereas in Australia, you, musicians generally are seen as, you know, the lowest form of life or seemed to be back then. Um, so that was a, yeah, that was a, a great uh sort of development and yeah the I guess we we had an adventurous spirit though from from the earliest days of whether it's the woolshed recording or just driving across to Sydney and throwing everything in your, your bag so it's all part of the adventure of of being in, in a band that I guess if we weren't producing such great music it it, it wouldn't have turned out like that, though. I mean, they go <laughs> together. I mean, you know, and you, then then you're meeting other interesting people, especially in Europe, who, are, you know, the promoters were really great. You know, there's some of the, the Dutch promoter had took the Beatles over there, you know, back in the 60s. And so you're sort of realising, oh, okay, we're now in amongst people who care about this sort of stuff. So it was, uh, yeah. A good, a good adventure. <laughs> the Woolshed sessions that Rob mentioned then are for the Triffords' next album, In the Pines, recorded in a woolshed on a remote WA property owned by the McCombs' parents around the time Born Sandy Devotional was eventually released 
We'll touch on that a bit later. But for now, we're back in London. The band have realised that they're going to have to fork out for the album sessions themselves, but through their various UK connections, have come into the orbit of a young up-and-coming producer, Gil Norton. These days, Gil is best known for producing bands like Pixies, Foo Fighters and Patti Smith, as well as some Aussie bands like Eskimo Joe and Violent Soho, but back then he was just emerging and best known for engineering and co-producing Echo on the Bunnyman's 1984 classic Ocean Rain. It's interesting that they used a producer at all, as Dave rarely saw eye to eye with them. They'd produced trailers playing themselves, but they were determined to take things to the next level, although as Rob explains, when push come to shove, Dave still usually got his way. We'd planned to, to make that a major record, but you know things didn't go... Well, a major record in the sense of having a, a, a record deal with a record company, which, you know, we'd been, apart from the deal we had with White Label and then they dropped us in Australia, um, Hot Records put out our records, but it wasn't, they're a sort of independent company. Um, and so they, they didn't have, we weren't signed on a contract to them or anything. Um, they tried to get us a major deal in 1985, uh, but we ended up not getting with Ireland until a year or so later, and so end up making Born Sandy completely off our own funds as well, which is um, pretty amazing now when, you, when I think back on it because we weren't living well. You know, we were sort of 50 bucks a week to, to survive on would come and everything else would be poured back into travel and accommodation. As you can imagine with six people, it's pretty... And then the recording... Uh, I think we spent about 30,000 Australian dollars on that, which is small, tiny compared to what we spent on Calenture, the next record with Ireland. Um, but, for you know, it was probably four times what we spent on Trailers Plane. <laughs> but um, it was just uh, a great situation to be in. We were, you know, calling the shots that there was no... In, in a way, a record company um, looking over our shoulders. Um, we'd got Gil Norton had had um, been put in touch with us via our publicist, who was, and he'd worked with that. You know, but all of those people worked with Echo and the Bunnymen, and Gil had produced Ocean Rain. You probably know about so, and that's where he brought in Adam Peters, who became our long friend. Um, to work on the strings and and other music for Born Sandy, so we had this great situation where we were, you know we were paying for it, we were completely in control, and Dave had a lot of confidence. Um, we're also working with Nick Mainsbridge, who we'd worked with Trellis Plane, and he was you know kind of gone from co-producer on Trellis Plane back to engineer on this. But in our in our minds, or at least in my mind. It was great to be working with a guy like Gil, but Dave had so much confidence, as did Nick. They are virtually sort of three-way producers, you know, that um, we, we weren't uh, you know, bowing to any of Gil's you know, special requests. You know, the, the dynamic would be Dave would come and say, he, you know, with all his notes and it's going to be like this and like that, and then you'd be recording it, and Gil would say, uh, you know, not sure about this, and David said, "No, no, it's going to be like that." <laughs> very occasionally, you know, Gil would would 
uh, his suggestions would be uh, you know, used. And he was great at getting good sounds and, and performances. But um, yeah, I remember just thinking it's great. You know, we, we don't have to, we're not in this situation where a producer would be trying to, well, <sighs> Dave knew more than any of them, I think. You know, he, he, I think we could have produced all our records. He, but he loves collaboration, so um, he liked working with Gil. And then we had the, for Calenture, we had a, a bit of a, a false start with producer Craig Leon, which didn't work out. But it's, a, it's good evidence of our adventurous spirit and willingness to try things and to, to really, you know, aim high and... and uh, yeah, take risks, and, but gladly we uh, realised that wasn't the direction we wanted to go with Calenture and got Gil Norton back in, somebody we knew we could push around effectively. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but Gil had respect for, for Dave too, so it, was, it, was a, yeah, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't just an abusive relationship. Calenture is the album after In the Pines, when they'd finally signed their major label deal with Ireland, which, as Rob explained, Gil Norton eventually produced as well. But that last paragraph still shines an interesting light on their studio dynamic. Meanwhile, pedal steel guitarist Graham Lee also remembers that times were pretty tough for the band from a financial perspective. As legend has it, you know, the Triffords were, uh, were living it up in London in comparison to the other Australian bands over there at the time, but that wasn't really true. Um, we, like we, you know, we, the, the band worked really hard to um, to get over there in the first place in in eighty uh, four, and then to um, like we used to tour incessantly in Australia and and just keep all the money, and all the money from the Triffids that the Triffids earned was ploughed back into the band, and you know we were on starvation wages and you know we were we were we had a place to live and um and we never went hungry but um but we never made any money we and um the like the tour the the tour just before i went to the uk all the money was saved from that and all of that was put into um, keeping us alive in London and recording Born Sandy. I think we had decided that the best, the, the way to go was to to just make that record ourselves. Um, if you speak to Sally Collins, she can clarify this for you. But um, we, I think it was twenty six thousand dollars we'd saved. And that's what we made Born Sandy with, um, and we we did have well we did have st- definitely had discussions with um, Virgin and various other major labels. Um, certainly, nobody wanted to to um, put up the the money to make an album. So we figured, well, we'll make a really good album, and they'll they'll have to take it. So we, we didn't intend to put it out independently. We intended to use the recording that we'd done to uh, to score a major label deal, but that didn't happen. 
So the Triffids are going into the Bourne Sandy devotional sessions on a shoestring budget and it's their money to boot. Tape is really expensive and they can only afford enough to record the 10 songs that will constitute the album, although luckily Dave is prepared in this regard and already knows what songs are going to make the cut. The other advantage that the Triffids had was that they were completely used to recording in situations of adversity, whether fighting primitive equipment on the early tapes or the guerrilla raids to record treeless playing in the middle of the night, or sneaking into the opera house for the Lawson Square Infirmary project. Rob explains that under the guidance of his younger brother, the Triffids were completely confident and ready to face down this new set of challenges. It comes from the earliest tapes. I mean, before I joined the band, they'd done three album-length cassette tapes of home recordings, each with about 20 songs, uh, done on a reel-to-reel two-track stereo, um, Again, it's that, okay, what are we doing? We're recording the song, here's get the mechanics in and accepting the result and saying that's the, you know, not being too fussy, I guess, but, but um, also having a, a creative uh, impetus through the whole process. It's just that's what's been going on since day one. So when I joined, we did another three-length album, you know, cassettes before we got the first single done. That was done through a radio competition, 6NR. We won that competition, beat the scientists by a narrow margin, I remember. <laughs> but that, uh, that way, uh, uh, you say, uh, I'm not quite sure how you described it, but that uh, sort of versatile but very practical um, and, and looking at the recording process as um, having a potential greater than... Um, the limitations of, I guess, pop music and the, um, and the production values of that. And it's probably the Woolshed record we did is probably a good example of that where, you know, one of our friends, Paul Bolger, who was doing sound for us in the early days, driving across Australia, he would look out and say, I wonder what a Woolshed sounds like, you know, the shearing shed sounds like, because he was getting acoustics in all of the different venues we're playing it. And that planted the idea. And then, so, yeah, as you know, we, after doing Born Sandy and before we signed to Ireland, is a, it's sort of a, partly a way of just amusing ourselves and keeping yourself interested in coming up with projects that are, are not, you know, the conventions of the industry. And, and we never really identified with the music industry as it was from day one. We always felt like we're in somehow our own little world. Um, I guess it wasn't until we got to the UK and the industry embraced us that we started to feel more a part of it. Um, so, yeah, we, that, that idea of um, being in control sessions and, and, make, and, and just being totally uh, with your own, being self-sufficient in the, in the process, um, obviously without great talent, that's going to be useless. But when you've got somebody like Dave, uh, I often say with Dave's songs, you know, it's really hard to do bad versions of them because they're great <laughs> songs. And, and and that's sort of the case with the recordings. If, if you go in with your own ideas, then you're going to come out with something that it's uh, it will stand, you know, it'll... Um, It'll stand on its own merits, not and doesn't. Uh, although you inevitably get compared to other artists, 
you know, now look back, the triffids have a really distinctive sound and it comes from that, that process, I think, over the years of doing your own thing and being independent, but also having, you know, you've got something of value. So it's sort of like, I guess, like a jeweler can make, make really crap jewellery, but if it's nice metal, it'll still have some <laughs> quality. Yeah. So they, yeah, the raw materials were always there, I think. They found their studio too, a little place called Mark Angelo Studio near Farringdon Station in London, which was usually used by reggae bands, but in this instance suited the Triffids' needs perfectly. Well, not exactly perfectly. They had to be rather innovative, as Graham explains. It was a small studio. There wasn't, they didn't have a drum room, so Alsie was set up in, in an empty warehouse next to the studio, and he didn't have any line of sight at all because there was no they didn't have a closed circuit TV or anything. So he was out there amongst all the girders, <laughs> which probably helped the drum sound. But um, uh, And Marty was, was um, in the studio itself. And, uh, you know, we were in the studio itself. And, and we had, I can remember we had to like climb up and climb through a hole in the wall and yeah look it was it wasn't ideal but it was a studio and it and uh, mark angelo knew what he was doing and um yeah we got on we got on well and we had i think through adam peters we that uh, like either either adam had become friendly with dave and um and Gil came along um, through Adam or the other way around. Uh, Gil was approached and Gil suggested Adam because Gil, Gil had already done an Echo and the Bunnymen album, which uh, Adam played on. Mm. They, I, I don't really know the details of how that, how that came about, but um, it was, yeah, there were some key players Gil was certainly one, and uh, Adam as well. And Adam became a a very uh, good friend with Dave very quickly because Adam recognised that Dave was great and and he wanted to be part of it. Okay, let's meet Adam Peters, the young English musician brought in to play on one song on Born Sandy Devotional because as well as playing piano and cello on Echo and the Bunnymen's Ocean Rain, He'd also overseen the album's prominent orchestral arrangements, who not only ended up all over the album, but very nearly ended up a member of the band as well. He formed a strong bond with Dave, and the pair would collaborate extensively down the track. But here's his first memories of being drafted into the Born Sandy sessions. It was brilliant. Um, I remember they were recording. I got a call. It would either have been from... Mick Houghton, who was the Bunnymen's publicist at the time and was also starting to do the Triffids. It was either him or maybe Gil Norton. Um, and what happened was they, I, I think, I don't think I'd met them before Born Sandy. 
I think I met them when they started recording it. I, I, I want to say that, and I lived kind of quite close to that studio, uh, to, to Mark Angelo's, it was called that studio. It was run by a guy called Mark Lusadi. And um, I, think I, I think they called me and I had been, I was with the Bunny Men, um, and we'd, I think we'd finished, um, we'd finished Ocean Rain, and I think we might have already toured it. I can't remember, but um, I was, you know, that was my world, and um, they, I think it was like. Gil had come out to Paris at some point, sort of, um, we, we, we were working with these French engineers and that, and then like, we wanted a, an engineer that spoke English. So Gil, who was like the house engineer at Amazon was sort of sent out um, to kind of come and help with that stuff. And then Gil and I got, you know, obviously, you know, we got on well. And um, I think then he got his first sort of producing thing with the Triffids. You know, that, you know, that was the first time he was sort of like, I think, you know, he was sort of starting the album and, you know, it was like, oh. So I, I went down to the studio to meet them. And, um, I, I must have felt pretty comfortable because um, I, it was kind of close to where I lived, which is kind of no man's land at that point in London. And I knew the place. So I went down and I met them and um, it, we just got on really, really well, like instantly. Um, and I think, you know, Dave and I are prob were probably from quite similar backgrounds, you know, um, and we'd, we'd obviously listened to the same music growing up, although he had sort of bits over there of the sort of some of the country stuff he was into that, that I didn't really know. And then I had st stuff on this side where that I was in really deeply into, which was some of the very sort of weird modern, really modern classical strange music. And, um, but also like albums like sort of Lou Reed's Berlin and stuff like that, um, which were very, yeah, you know. So, and obviously we'd all, you know, we'd probably both grown up listening to Velvet Underground and, you know, all the stuff that was sort of standard issue back then. Um, and uh, we just got on really well. We just hit it off. And um, I, I think we might, even when I went down, we might have even, I might have just, I was very confident because I, you know, we'd had, I'd had, it had been so great doing all of Ocean Rain and that, I kind of really f just felt good, you know, and I'm sure, I, I cannot remember the first day, but I'm pretty sure 
I would have been there and then it would have been like, well, I know this, but let's try this. Let's do this. Let's do that. I was really like that because we were, because we were young. It was still like when you went into a recording studio, it was like, you got this time. It's not like now everyone's got studios and this and that and their setups at home and all that stuff. It was like, you're in. And so my natural personality is, is just to sort of deal with the communication through music. That's, you know, I'm, I'm very, that's kind of how I function. I've sort of learned that later. <laughs> but um, So I know I would have been like, he would have played me, he played me, a, started playing me these songs. You know, you go in, go and sit down. They started playing me stuff and instantly I'm like, Bing, bing, bing. What, let's try this. Let's do that. What about this? Oh, that'd be fucking cool if we did this, wouldn't it? And it, it just all, it, it, it just sort of worked. It, it, there was a, a synergy that happened that they were really receptive to what I was saying. And what I was saying meant something musically. And I think, you know, I, I really... As soon as I heard the words, I, I got off on them. And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. And I can really paint, I can paint colors with this. Um, and that, that's how I, I very much still do, but that's what I was sort of experimenting with then was using, using music and to me, music always has a meaning. It's not just, oh, I'm going to play this part because that's kind of what I've come up with. Da, 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 da. Okay, I'll do, 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 do. You know, to me, every note speaks. So my whole thing was that th these were sort of fully, you know, Dave could sit and play the song on a guitar. I'd be like, fuck, you know, <laughs> this needs that, this needs that. It's not just, oh, let's find something that fits. It's like, what is this? What is, you know, let's find the horizon here. Let's, let's, let's do, let's go for it. You know, like Scott Walker had done and all that stuff. But we're not, I'm not, we're not going, um, oh, let's make a Scott Walker album at all. But it's just, those are the kind of arrangements that speak of the soul and the heart and, you know, all those invisible, it's all invisible stuff. The Triffids weren't the first Aussie band that Adam had become besotted with in mid-80s London. So I was really into the birthday party. They were around in London and I was, I'd been going to all their shows and they were, you know, that was chaos, man. That was fucking amazing. And it was, you know, there weren't many people there. They're playing little gigs at like the Rock Garden and upstairs at these bars and stuff like that. And so I really got, I sort of had seen this energy that came from the sort of art punk thing coming out of Australia. And I, I really loved it. I loved Roland Howard's angular guitar playing and then this sort of friction that was there on the stage. Um, and so that was all in the air. 
you know, the whole thing of when we were doing Ocean Rain, it was, you know, I was right, really trying to paint the words, um, you know, trying to make these paintings um, with the with the way the things move in the background. So we've got the studio, the producer, new people throwing in ideas, the crack band, and make no mistake, the Triffids were a crack band. But also be under no illusion that this is anything but Dave's project. Gil Norton had never produced anything himself before, so I was very fortunate that Dave knew exactly what he wanted, down to precise notes on how he envisaged individual parts and textures on each song, as Graham explains. Gil was very, he's a little bit puddly and, and he was very, he was a funny guy. He was a nice guy. And he, um, he just tried, I think he just tried to support Dave. And if truth be told, um, any Triffids album at all uh, was in part produced by Dave because he had so many ideas. Um, when we went in to, to to do Born Sandy, he had reams and reams and reams of production notes. You know, this one is supposed to sound like this and um, and had lists of records that people should listen to because they this is what this record should sound like in part. Um, he, to any... Any Triffids record was actually co-produced by Dave, even if it doesn't say so. And I think Gil just supported Dave's Dave with his ideas, and and yeah, sure he he had input as well. And Nick Mainsbridge was the was the assistant, so Nick had done Treeless Plane with the Triffids, and Nick was Nick. I think Nick was a an important person to have there because because he knew the band. He had worked worked sort of midnight to dawn sessions in Sydney with with the band and he knew how we worked. And, um, and I think if anything, if anything, Gil uh, really tried to, to, to let us sound like the Triffid sound like, you know. Because I think he recognised that this was a a, a bunch of um, musicians who actually worked together really well instinctively, and and I guess, I guess um, when you when you look at some of the songs, um, they such as uh, "Lonely Stretch," pretty tricky song to record, um, and I don't know how the hell we did that with. Um, bass and drums first which I think we did but when you listen to it it doesn't sound like it was pieced together it sounds like it's a band playing it sounds like because it's this sort of juggernaut that takes off um but lurches along the way and um yeah I don't know I don't know how the hell we did that to to be quite (laughs) honest stolen property also yeah yeah another one that you know it, it just sounds, uh, it's a song that sounds like it was always there. And it, it's one of those, those sort of, you know, um, 
sculptor looking at a block of stone and the um, the statues in there. You just got to get to it. Someone standing in the rain like they had no place to go. Maybe that someone is you. Maybe someone you don't aim to know. Maybe lost possessions. Maybe stolen property. You just lie around waiting on a signal from heaven. You never had to heal any deep incisions, darling. Graham also remembers Dave having the album's layouts in his head from the get-go. By the time we got into the studio, they were set in stone, yes. But in the in the couple of months beforehand, um, or maybe the six months beforehand, they weren't set in stone. There was a song called Time of Weakness, which was supposed to be on there and never made it. Um, it was, I think it became a B-side of something or other. Uh, and the the order was pretty much settled too, if I, if I recall the notes correctly. Um, so, yeah, by the time we got in there, we had 10 songs and that was it. And, and the order might even have been sorted out as well. And remember that these songs were chosen thematically to fit together. Unrequited love. Dave had heaps of songs. Nearly all of the songs from In the Pines were floating about already, but these 10 just seemed to fit together thematically, as Sally reflects. It was the perfect 10 songs. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a perfect track listing. You know, it starts amazingly, it finishes amazingly, it tells a whole story. And the, um, you know, yes, Dave always had other songs. And, you know, I, I remember during their the, um maybe it was just after the re- the recording, they did a show um, that Gil came to and Gil Norton had not seen the band live at all, you know, um, before working with them. And they did a song called Dear Miss Lonely Hearts. And he was, he was like, why isn't this on the album? Why didn't they record this? And, you know, <laughs> but it, it was, uh, you know, I, I never considered it was because of a lack of money. Um, I, I just thought that it was just perfect as it was, you know. Nick Mainsbridge's presence during the Bourne Sandy devotional sessions was also soothing for the Triffords. He'd engineered Treeless Plane and co-produced the reigning Pleasure EP, so his rapport with and understanding of the band's techniques and temperament proved vital. I think I'd worked out what I could expect staying in Australia, and I thought at the time there was some pretty interesting music being made in the UK and um, I just thought it was the right place to be for some reason 
And uh, I was pretty determined, but it was um, a difficult choice for me. But with my mother's health at the time and uh, you know, various things going on in my life at the time, it was uh, a tricky decision. But um, what I found in the UK was the same kind of Perth diaspora, but it was the Australian diaspora and, in London. And, um, and look, everyone was really, really too kind, you know. I was just this 21-year-old shy guy and uh, somehow they put up with me. You know? <laughs> the world seemed a bit bigger place back then. Was it a big culture shock going from Perth to Sydney to London in quick succession? Oh, uh, sure. I mean, I'd travelled with my parents as a kid, but this was quite another thing. Um, yeah. Um, of course, it was a a change, but uh, yeah, I don't think I was uncomfortable with it. It, it was an exciting time to be around music. Uh, there was things happening everywhere. There were um, Thatcher was in power. Um, things were try starting to turn quite dark. Um, there was a hell of a lot of interesting music going on, and um, it just seemed to be the only place to be at the time. I never had an interest in going to America until much later. I mean, I was a fish out of water, really, but um, I was just wide-eyed walking around and, and absorbing it all. Um, I was incredibly lucky just to be at that place at that time. And, but I, I don't really think I went to the UK to do a Triffids record. I just was there and the timing was right. And that's, um, that speaks to so much of what, what happened, has happened to me since, you know. I've just been lucky. Nick self-deprecatingly recalls his role as being quite peripheral in the studio, having to do some of the heavy lifting as the Triffids adapted to the limitations of their surroundings. Oh, look, I, I'd be amazed if I made much of a positive difference. It was, um, uh, I remember that in the very early parts of the record, the main thing was to find a studio. And we I would travel around London with uh, Dave and uh, Jill sometimes, um, looking at studios and wondering if it was a suitable place. And when we found uh, Mark Angelo, um, um, well, when we found Mark Angelo, something seemed to click. Um, the particular thing was that the, the Triffids are a large band. Um, uh, you need a lot of room to record them all live, which is, I think, what we had to do at some stage and then sort of dissect the recording. And um, we had this vacant space next door. My main role was to just in the morning set everything up, which included assembling Alzi's rig in a vacant lot next door, you know, setting up the band again and uh, getting everything ready to um, record. And Gil was, um, well, my main job was to look after the tape machine, basically. You know, I would be the guy running the recordings, punching in, um, running around with microphones, micing up various odd things as they came in. I can't believe you had to pack down the drums every night That when Elsie was Well, this is the thing. Right? It was like the roof wasn't on the building next door. It was a 
a building that's in the process of being demolished. And um, if it rained, of course, his drum kit and all the microphones would get wet. So, um, yeah, that's the the um, method we chose. And poor old Alzi, you know, where he was completely invisible. The Michaelis were sort of running over a a small wall, which you'd have to jump over to get back into the control room. So we we had a microphone for him to talk to us through, which I would constantly leave closed, the poor <laughs> bastard. So there's like, after a take, we're all having this conversation. He can hear us. And I've often forgotten to turn on his mic and he's going, hello, hello. Trying not to have to jump over this wall to run back to the control room. You know, the poor guy. I feel so sorry for him. <laughs> but anyway, that's, uh, I don't know what my role was. I was trying to keep track of uh, what was being recorded on the tapes and uh, just trying to cope with this massive influx of instruments that would appear, you know, vibraphones and steel drums and stuff. Um, Gil was always, Gil was also quite engineering focused, you know, he was um, intently interested in getting the, the correct sound. And that's something that Dave really identified with, you know, all in the very early days when we were trying to mix his tracks, he, he would have everything worked out. You know, he knew what every instrument should do, where, why, and um, he was intently focused on the, the first utterance of instruments, you know, and getting that sort of, uh, the sympathetic uh, performance, um, clear. Um, so yeah, he was interested in both getting the right performance when we we're recording, but also in the mixing. It was very important to get that utterance and the balance correct um, as these various scene changes happened, especially in the more ambitious recording. Being the mid eighties, technology in the studio was still pretty limited. But Adam Peters remembers the Triffids being keen to embrace new innovations, even if sometimes they weren't quite sure what was meant to be happening. On, on the second day, we, I was like, you know, let's, we need to get some sounds. Some of these sort of, there's these things called samplers that play sounds, you know, like string sounds and shit like that. Um, I was like, you know, I want to get one of those in and let's put some stuff down because we weren't going to do like a 60 piece orchestra or something. It wasn't that kind of budget. But so I, they said, let's hire this. I said, let's hire this thing. That's this machine. It's called an emulator. And it was the one, you know, it's like everybody used it. Then it's like, so whatever, fucking Peter Gabriel or, you know, <laughs> it was expensive bit of gear it was expensive things to hire and everyone's like oh can we afford that and it's like oh i don't know it's like you know 200 quid a day or something like that oh, fuck that i don't know what it was and um so this thing turns up with these roadies and it's all that and it's like a big deal and um i kind of said i think this will really be a good idea we should get this down so this thing turns up and you know the band are a bit like sort of looking at this, what, what the fuck is the, where is the body is all this? <laughs> and I'm like, trust me, it'll be brilliant, you know. And um, 
So we set this thing up and um, it doesn't work. And it's like, oh, and then we stop fucking around with it and trying to, you know, unscrew things and screw things back. And, and everyone's getting really starting to get like the atmosphere is getting really weird. And, and that, and that everyone's a bit like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? And then, um, and then I think, um, I mean, Rob, Rob had like a big load of pots and he, everyone started smoking like tons of getting rid and everyone was like, this day is fucked, you know, it's done. We're not, nothing's going to happen. It's like the day's gone. And um, so they all got really fucking stoned. And then suddenly this like roadie turned up from wherever this bit of gear had been rented and was like, oh, it needs this, you know, these big floppy discs. You've got to put this in here and all that. And I was like, oh, great, okay. You know, so I was like, oh, it's working. And everyone, everyone else, like Rob and Grams, are like, huh? <laughs> you know. So I was like, okay, let's fucking do this now. You know, it's like, get it all going. And um, so there was this very hazy atmosphere in the studio and everyone's sort of wasted, but I wasn't because I wasn't smoking weed. I might've had a puff or something, but I, I, I wasn't like a heavy um, pot smoker and neither was Dave actually. Um, so we kind of set this thing up and then turned down the lights and I put it through like a, an echo unit and a delay unit, sort of Eno fucking like space out stuff. And we just lined up the tracks. We just lined those fucking songs up, man. And just, and I remember we, we started and it was, um, I took a wrong turning off and I'm not track. I couldn't, that, that one, Lonely Stretch. And there was, he sort of started the tape and I just sort of put my hands on this thing and sort of was just bending these sounds around. And it started creating all these atmospheres of these sort of abstract things that were that just, I think really set a, um, set a depth to the sound, you know? Um, and I think Dave, I mean, not I think, everyone really responded to it because it was, it was fucking amazing. It was like one take. And then, you know, those bits where it's, it was sort of just tempt out with the guitar going to the side, suddenly putting all this stuff on that makes it shimmer. It was sort of shimmering like, um, like, in the road on the road in a distance going through a desert you know it was like that so when that happened we were just like we're on it you know we we, we found something and it, it just sort of i was sort of going through the album just sort of making things mesh with this you know the stuff that the band were doing and it created um it, it created something that was, you know, it, it, I got that 
thing of, of like when we would play live in the Bunnymen, we would go into these sort of long 15 minute takedown sections where Will would be doing his sort of real like Sid Barrett-y kind of weird guitar stuff and just like, you know, it's like this sort of smoky atmosphere of creating abstract sound, but within the framework of a rock thing. And um, it really fucking worked. And you could feel, we all were getting the shivers as, we, as this was happening. Another great muser who popped up on Born Sandy Devotional was Chris Abrahams, who played vibraphone on Estuary Bed. These days he's a world-renowned jazz pianist with a massive body of work behind him, including with his acclaimed outfit The Necks. But back then he was label mates with the Triffords on Hot, courtesy his early band The Benders, and Nick remembers he too being quite innovative in the studio. One um, memory of I have that, that I thought was quite funny was um, recording, uh, recording Chris Abrahams on the vibraphone. And I had no idea where to place microphones to record this damn thing. And while I was trying to work out where the microphones were going, he was saying, how do you hold these things? I'm talking about the mallets. And, you know, I don't know if you're aware of it, but you have to sort of be really good to be able to play intervals on those mallets and do it properly. And five minutes later, he's playing it like a, you know, like a pro, of course he is a pro, but um, uh, so many things, um, so many people have just incredibly talented on that record. The children are walking back from the Becoming obvious to all involved that what they were working on was a seismic step up from Treeless Playing. There were other EPs and singles between the two albums, of course, but Rob remembers everything crystallising perfectly. They'd assembled a great crew, David brought in an incredible batch of songs, even the fact that they hadn't landed that sought-after major label deal, much to their initial chagrin, meant that they had complete creative control in the studio and were free to indulge every creative whim. Yeah, it's hard, hard to know because um, something like uh, your yeah, trailer's playing had it, you know, midnight to dawn sessions at some of the songs you, you think back could have been a, done a bit differently or um, I, I don't know. The, why was there 
such a big jump to Born Sandy. A whole lot of things. Uh, just, just the environment that you're working in probably was, you know, the fact that there we were, London. You know, you got your studio. You, it was a. The stakes are probably higher, I guess, for us. You know, as it was. Uh, if we, if you don't keep improving, then you know, if we couldn't have produced a much better record than Trailers Plane, then what would be the point? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, things like Graham's, the textures of his pedal steel, that, um, and working with someone like Adam Peters, who was sympathetic to to some of the atmospheres of the strings and, and keyboards, uh, gave the strength to the record that Treeless Plane didn't have. Uh, Chris Abrahams on piano, um, he's he's just brilliant. Yeah, a, little, a lot of little things I think uh, led to to such a, a strong. Um, yeah, it's just a, a sort of a golden moment in a sense. You were sort of where you could argue with Kalacher, we got, you know, with more money to spend, we went into too much experimentation, too much production. But then if we'd never gone that you wouldn't have had the lushness of Bury Me Deep Love or something. So, yeah, no, no regrets in that sense. But certainly with Born Sandy, there was a kind of uh, just a like a, a golden moment when everything was sort of right. And as I say, there was no major record company, but there was quality recording going on and uh, and a really strong sort of, we, we had a strong identity, self-identity and confidence from that. Dave McComb certainly had confidence in himself, his band and his songs. Just before leaving Australia to hit London for the second time, the Triffids had been given the cover of local music magazine Ram, and in Dave's interview with journo Frank Brunetti, he talked about his aspirations for what would become Born Sandy Devotional. It's a matter of becoming more blunt, more direct in what you have to say. I used to have these beliefs about subtlety, that subtlety could win out in the end, but I'm not sure it works like that. I thought intelligence was another good quality to have, whereas now I'd rather see a wrong-headed but really emotional performance than a safe one. I like failures if they're interesting failures. Now that we've removed the shackles of having been this small, modest thing, I think we're quite capable of not putting any restrictions on ourselves. I think this group is capable of making an album, as opposed to Treeless Plane, which is just a collection of songs. An album with songs specifically written for it that would be a very powerful album in the same way that Blood on the Tracks is. It's worthwhile being that ambitious, even if people think it's ludicrous. I think we're capable of deregulating ourselves enough to really let loose and make a record that has nothing to do with what we were in the past. Some bands get worse as they go along. We're just the opposite. We've always known that what we'd go on to do would be more interesting than what we did at the start. By this time next year, we'll have another album out, that will be really good in a completely different way than the last records have been. We'll leave episode two there, with the Triffids still working on their opus, but everything seeming to be coming together. I'm going to play you the song that Adam was describing using the emulator on before, Lonely Stretch. It's one of my favourite songs on the album, like a lot of songs on Born Sandy Devotional set in the Outback, but, as we'll look into in episode four, not actually about the Outback. 
It's using the geography Dave knows so well as metaphor for his heartbreak and separation anxieties. Wrong turn off of an unknown track I did Seven miles I couldn't find my way back Hit a lonely stretch Must be losing my touch I was out of my death Let us suffer Well up in ocean No distinguishing features Any direction Saving my empty shells for her
Thanks so much for making it this far. Please stay with us on the voyage and check out the remaining episodes because there's still plenty of twists and turns left in this particular journey. I'll see you then. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Marks. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.